The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. We have chosen to omit names or use sound effects in this production because the individuals discussed have not been formally arrested, charged, or accused of wrongdoing in the death of Carol Ropstead. Thursday, April 10th, 2008, at 12.34 p.m., um, we're here to talk to Carol Rostad's family uh, in regards to uh, the homicide case in Normal in 1975. You're listening to the only interview ever released in a murder mystery that's nearly half a century old. Um, making everybody aware of the conversations being audio recorded. No one talking is a suspect. They're all members of the victim's family. She was doing just fine, never struggled with grades. She was in a great sorority. The police officers who have come to call, 33 years after the fact, seem uninformed. You are Carol's sister, younger, younger sister. Unprepared. We may look at that later, we'll see. Yet confident. Every name and every memory, although it may seem insignificant, could be important. There could have been a phone call. You can't even find these people. I can find them. Absolutely, I can find them. The toughest thing for me is when I have an idea about how something might have happened and then absolutely nothing frickin' fits. This is the retired Chicago cop who lives 122 miles away from normal. He knows practically every detail of the case file. Funny, though, he's much less confident. I know a little about policing, and I, I know a little about baseball. Otherwise, I don't know shit. If anything, he is realistic. I'm far more sure that the same person who killed Carol also is the person who tried to rape her in her apartment. This is a story about a beautiful Illinois State University sorority girl and the police department that has failed her. They couldn't get anybody to do anything. The cops just blew me off because they, they're a pack full of lies and stories and they're trying to, they're trying to make this whole thing go away. I thought you were going to come up here and show me some pictures and tell me you're getting close and you're ready to rock and roll. Maybe you're next to the Yeah, that'll be the next to the top. We'll come back when? In a couple years? I'm a criminal, so despicable, tell me I'm thinkable, and then it feels good to be a criminal, so despicable, tell me I'm thinkable, then it feels, then it feels good. From Genuine Human Productions, 
This is Carol's Last Christmas. Chapter 1. Mr. Green Jeans. My name is Laura Kuhn, maiden name Rothstad. Just wanted to connect with you. My parents, they moved with my brother and sister from Chicago to the very first subdivision in Elk Grove. I was born two months after they bought their house. They bought it with cash. Brand new house, that's how, you know, people did back then. And um, the typical ranch. We had the largest model, uh, three bedrooms, two full baths, a large living room, an eating kitchen, and uh, later on, we added on the family room, but nobody had family rooms back then. It was a utopia for children, you know. We were all over and and you could play and and knew everybody from the different, you know, blocks and Carol and I were four and a half years apart. She was born in March of fifty four and I was born in October of fifty eight. And my brother was two and a half years younger than my sister and two years um, older than I am. It was kind of like Bob and I always played together and hung out with kids, and Carol was always older and played with, went to the other neighborhood, to her friends' houses, and, and you know, I remember my mother used to make her take me with to the swimming pool and you know she didn't want to right (laughs) carol was a girly girl in a way and you know my parents got her this vanity that the mirror comes up and and she would do my hair every day and Then when I got my own room, they got Carol her own telephone with her own telephone number because, you know, back then, one phone in the kitchen was in big demand, and um, she loved it. Yeah, it was just, you know, sisters, you know, we used to, you know, borrow each other's clothes and shoes. And I mean, we got to the point where we did those kind of things. And and when I had braces, I remember Carol uh, came home from college and, and had to take me over to the orthodontist. She'd say, um, oh, you're already out from school let just stay out the rest of the day and we'd go to woodfield together the the, you know shopping mall oh yeah we did those kind of things you you guys were just at the point where it would have been fantastically fun to hang out yes right they were comfortable their father had his own commercial carpet business but carol rofsted was proudly independent a worker she worked at the Osco 
our OSCO in the camera department for junior and senior year um, part-time to get ready for uh, to pay for college, help pay for college. Uh, first of all, she went to Western, Western Illinois University for her first year. And then she missed her friend who was also, uh, Susie was also from Elk Grove who was going to ISU. So Carol transferred to ISU to be near her friend, but her friend got a boyfriend some uh, from a farm town and they spent all their time together and Carol joined a sorority. Presented with little or no interruption, Carol's Last Christmas has been an expensive endeavor. If you appreciate our work, please consider making a donation to help. Thanks for supporting Carol and our work. Visit patreon.com forward slash Carol's Last Christmas. Delta Zeta was founded on October 24, 1902 at Miami University in Miami, Ohio. Our chapter Lambda Row was the first Panhellenic sorority founded at ISU in 1973. Friendship, service, leadership, and lifelong learning are at the core of who we are as Delta Zetas. Delta Zeta was the first um, to go to national sorority. National sororities were banned at ISU for like 100 years by one of the founders. And so... Um, there was all these like local fraternities and basically Delta Zeta was called Lambda Row. And they lived in an old, you know, one of those old Victorian houses. And the pledge classes were the size of how many seniors were moving out the next semester. <laughs> <laughs> Most of Carol's sorority sisters, now in their late 60s, asked that we not use their names. So um, to beef up and we were moving into a new house, they almost immediately pledged a second class right after us. And so there was a while there when we were pledges together, and that was Carol's class. I was a fashion merchandising major, and I do remember when it came time to do composite pictures, all of us girls would be like, oh, my gosh, you got to look perfect. And, and polyester was in. Well, bell bottoms were in, too, but when it came to looking nicer, polyester kind of flare pants and like silky top, low cut top. If you had something to show and you were going out to the bar, you wore a low cut top. (laughs) (laughs) It was the 70s at Illinois State. Historically, it had been a teacher's college, what the French academics referred to as a normal school. Now you know how the town got its quirky name. The Vietnam War was still on, and there were changes in town. During the early 70s, the town of Normal ended its 115-year history of prohibiting alcohol sales, and the state dropped the drinking age from 21 to 19 for beer and wine. 
um, you know, they always used to sit back and say, oh, the, 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 for, for a, a guy to come to ISU, there were three women for every one guy. I don't think I had three dates the whole, the whole four years I was here. <laughs> you know? Drug use was common, and alcohol was the basis for most social interaction. There's like 23,000. Yeah, which is still a pretty big campus. Yeah, right. Rock music represented a form of personal freedom and emotional high. I mean, it was Steve Miller, Fleetwood Mac, Ario Speedwagon, Cheap Trip. Um, you know, we're going back to the 70s. But the largest stage of all was the center of campus, where Rites of Spring became ISU's version of Woodstock. It was held in the quad. And, um, wow, fun. You, you took your little styrofoam cooler, filled it with Annie Greenspring's or Boone's Farm or beer, and went in and you had your little um, bandana around your head. Everybody had the long hair parted in the middle. And Bibbs sat down there and enjoyed a couple of, couple of bands from... Um, Woodstock. I can't. Country Joe and the Fish. Mm -hmm. Remember which one? Charlie Daniels Band was one. The Rites of Spring was not and never could be a controllable event. Illinois State would eventually pull the plug on Rites of Spring. They called it a danger. The potential for injuries and even fatalities was very high. Yet the administration would keep quiet about threats far more real. Good evening, I'm Roger Mudd. Washington has been inundated by another massive set of Watergate transcripts. These volumes form the substance from which the committee will shape its decision to impeach or not. It's July 1974. Conscientious Carol Rofsted has stayed on the ISU campus to get ahead on her college credits. She stayed uh, over the summer, the first summer there, to try and catch up on credits. because They went from trimesters to semesters. I have never been a quitter. It would be a matter of weeks before the President of the United States resigns. Therefore... I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford. But in Carol's smaller world, there would be another life-changing event. And that's when she got attacked the first time. Uh, yes. Um, I uh, was Carol Ross' best friend in college. And I know I have told people I didn't want to talk to you. It took us some time to get people to talk about this case. Some simply wouldn't. I think maybe I better talk to you. You will hear five sorority sisters. Gosh, you know, I've thought about this for a hundred years. A fraternity friend. When she was attacked that summer in 74, she called me. Carol's own sister. Her roommate had just moved out that day. And the official police report obtained through a Freedom of Information request. Time reported, 3.08. Date reported, 7 
that was a night we all went out and there was a big group of us, maybe a dozen or more. And it was summertime and we were all in our cute little sundresses. And, you know, we were very much, everyone knew we were there because, hey, we're Delta Zetas. And uh, so, um, then we came home. You walk up to the house in big white pillars, you know, and there was kind of a front porch. Um, so it was very distinguished looking on that block. So it stood out above any other location that was there. The last person to turn out a light, the attack came a half an hour later. The back door had a window and um, just broke the window and it fell on carpet. So, you know, we never heard. Um, and then just could open the door. I think the door was even unlocked, if I understand correctly. I don't remember. First, they tried to break into the basement through like one of those casement windows, but couldn't get in. Once he got in there, then there was just a bar that would open the door and let him in. A push bar. So he just pushed that and got himself in. And I had to work that night. But the girls were going out to party. It was summer. I understand. So there's very few people in the house, maybe 10 girls. So all the girls went out to party to the bars, except for me. And I got home. I usually got home around 1.30 because I worked at night. I got home at 1.30 in the morning. And I had just fallen asleep. And all of a sudden I heard this screaming and I said, oh my God, they're home drunk. I'm trying, I got seven o'clock class, you know, please go to bed, please go to bed. And I rolled over and then I heard this blood curdling scream and I ran out of my bedroom door and right across was Carol. The door to her bedroom was open. She was in a pink like Teddy. Her face was all bloody. Um, she said, he hit me into the dresser he just threw me into the dresser and I was just, you know, trying to get her to stop screaming. And then everybody else in the house came running and uh, I was president of the sorority, tried to call the police and all the telephone wires had been cut mm. except for the apartment in the basement. Templeton discovered that a 10 to 12 inch hole had been smashed in the window of the back door. The man cut a phone cord about an inch from the phone with a sharp-bladed instrument. And there was a closed door on his right, which was my bedroom, and a closed door on his left, which was Carol's bedroom. And he went in that door, um, put his hand over her mouth and said, if you scream, I don't know if he said, I'll hurt you or I'll kill you, or he said something like that. I can't remember exactly. And so, of course, she screamed because she was a smart girl. And um, he picked her up and threw her against the dresser, broke her nose. He had already gone out through the kitchen and down the fire escape. She gave the following description. Wearing green work pants, straight-legged, cuffed, long sleeve. She said he was dressed, they would call him green jeans because he was dressed like in a green work outfit, like, you know, like one of those worker uniforms. I would have to re-listen to it, but the one thing I do remember was when when you, um, there was conversation about uh, 
um, when Mr. Green Jeans broke in and um, that all the phone lines were cut, which mm-hmm. wasn't true. That's not true. No, not true. I was there. I was there. After all these years, there are some conflicting memories. But this is one of the few times the normal police department reports are accurate. The phone line was cut. I remember her being severely shook, shaken up. And I mean, just out and out scared. She called me and she, this was the day after the attack. And she said, can you come over and spend the night with me? And I said, sure, whatever you want me to do, you know. And um, about two weeks later, I don't know if Jack told you this. Another sorority tried to get, was broke into. Ooh, yeah. And the girls, the girls, and again, I can ask my husband, the, if I'm not mistaken, the girls all climbed down the roof. They could get from their bedroom, their dormitory, onto the roof and were screaming and screaming and screaming. And they must have scared that the, whoever tried to break in away. Was that, was that publicized? I don't know. I don't know. Then it was coming it was time to for the girls to come back for regular semester. So we had a you know, everybody had to do a deep cleaning and everybody had a certain part of their their bedroom to work on, their suite to work on, and then the the common areas of the house. And I had the hallway from the back door out the front door. There was a, a umbrella rack there and you know, so I was cleaning and dusting and you know and I pulled out the um, umbrella rack pulled out all the umbrellas and there were wire cutters sitting there. Uh. Presented with little to no interruption, Carol's Last Christmas has been an expensive endeavor. If you enjoy our work, please consider making a donation to help. Visit patreon.com forward slash Carol's Last Christmas. I always said that person is going to think that she can, that that she can identify him. I feel like he's going to come back, and 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 try and hurt her again. Hey, D, it's George. Uh, when you get a chance, can hear Colin. It's there, so I want to run something by you. George Seibel is that retired Chicago detective and our investigative partner. He has immersed himself in this case twice as a college cold case instructor in 2008 and over the past two years with us at Genuine Human. You'll be hearing plenty from George about countless errors and missteps by law enforcement. She saw two things about the guy. Three things. He was a big guy and picked her up like a rag doll and threw her against the the dresser, and that's how... She, quote-unquote, hurt her, hurt her face. But she saw the guy was wearing a green work shirt. Right. Boots. And he was wearing dirty combat boots. Yeah. This is the supplementary report to complaint number 4782. They got one of the leads about the cases. They, a woman contacted the police and said that there was a guy... Because they published something about the first crime and said that the guy was wearing a green work shirt. Yeah. There had been a subject coming in the cellar, about 30 years old, and wearing green work clothes with work shoes. 
clothing description fits the subject involved in the incident. And so she told the story about a creepy guy that came in after work every day at uh, at cocktail hour, and he always was wearing his green work shirt. She said, quote, the subject comes in about two to three times a week. I I went through everything in in the, uh, the two FOI packages a total of 140-some pages or whatever, and they never followed up on going back to the bar with a green shirt. She came home immediately um, and stayed home the rest of the summer. Uh, She insisted that it was some random attack I think she was just wrong place, wrong time. Really? It didn't never occur to you that it might have been targeted? No. You know, we locked doors more from that point forward. The girls wanted to believe the assault on Carol was random. But the Delta Zeta house at Illinois State was a bit of a maze, with suites and separate kitchens. Um, and there was a closed door on his right, which was my bedroom and a closed door on his left, which was Carol's bedroom. Who could do this? Who would want to hurt her? Sweet Carol Rothstead had no enemies, or so it seemed. I think it was in a class that I was in that I actually met him. I'm trying to remember. Sometime before the July attack on Carol, there was an encounter that stood out in one of the sorority sisters' minds. An encounter with someone who had carved out a fairly high profile on campus. And I knew he was a student center president. I mean, I knew he was the president of our student center. We would sit after class in in the student center quad kind of area. Um, And we would sit outside and just talk for, you know, whatever. I learned a bit about him. You know, that's when I learned that he had served in Vietnam and that he was injured in service. He had shrapnel, so he had no feelings in his hands. Um, You know, he had this kind of lisp, the way that he talked, and an accent the way that he talked. I mean, so I wouldn't say we were best friends. We were just, you know, more of acquaintances. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there was a time where we were going to go to a meeting, so he came by the sorority house to pick me up. And that's when he met Carol. I introduced him. He just came in the front door, and we were just standing there, and Carol just happened to walk up the stairs because her apartment was down down the basement. So she just came up the stairs at the same time. There wasn't a lot of room because the door opened and all that stuff. And, um, and I said, Carol, this is... You know, and, and Carol did her Carol thing, you know, which was... You hang around with all those political activists. And I went, well, Carol, and and then I could, the look on his face was unbelievable change. He got angry and he started to say something. I said, she's just kidding. She goes, no, I'm not. And she just left (laughs) and she just went back downstairs, like in that quick encounter. And I said, we need to go, right? And 
so we, we left and I said wow you took that hard and he's like well I don't like being called that and I said she's just kidding right and that was it you know that was kind of off to the meeting and never said anything more about her um, but he he was pissed very quickly pissed and inappropriately so wouldn't you say totally inappropriately so you know it's like can't you take a joke <laughs> kind of thing Was this a man with just a bad temper or someone who could be violent? So just tell me about what you're doing in 1975. I moved here from Chicago. I'd practiced law in Chicago for two years. I applied for a job called Director of Student Legal Services. Do you think he we located a retired attorney in Normal who had had some well-publicized campus conflicts with this man back in the 70s. Hold on one second. We met at a busy outdoor coffee shop. He was a volatile person. He was uh, arrested and charged with uh, beating up a woman who I guess had been on a date and got into an argument. Knocked her down and jumped on top of her and punched her face uh, until some other students pulled him off. Well, I entered my appearance on his behalf when he was charged with battery that I was quickly replaced by another lawyer and uh, I didn't have a chance to really get into the case. I didn't do much at all uh, before the other guy came on. At least a year, two years later, uh, I spoke to a, an acquaintance who was a, a police detective and uh, something about the Ralston matter came up. And I said, uh, is that, are, you, are you still investigating and he said in a sarcastic tone, oh, no, that would be harassment. We couldn't do that. Next time on Carol's Last Christmas. I don't mind talking about crime. I, I like crime. I, I, I can talk. And I, I'm good with that. But if I had a choice between just solving a freaking case or talking about it. It's not close. You know, I would I would I would pass on the, on the podcast thing in a New York second. My frame of reference with all this stuff is when I look at any kind of cold case at all is what are the chances of solving this and why? You know, what needs to be done? How does it need to be carried out? Am I capable of doing it? What are the chances? What are the odds? What are the ramifications? These people have so much, I'm talking about the cops and the prosecutors, right? in my opinion, have so much to hide. It's almost like if these guys are senior citizens now and the case was never solved, the last thing they want is for them to look bad, their organization to look bad, and there's no way out of it. It's going to have to come out that these people was, were screwed up. never looked at a police file where I, I looked at eight different pages about eight different suspects and at the bottom of every page every person was eliminated and never said why.
Carol's Last Christmas is a genuine human production reported from interviews with friends, family, and experts, and based on official records obtained through the Freedom of Information Act. Lead investigator George Seibel, Chicago Police Department, retired. Investigator and co-producer, Alexandra Daskalopoulos. Investigator, writer, and narrator, Demetria Kaladinos. Voiceover recreation, Justin Holder. Audio mastering and consultation by Paul Gibson. Music provided rights-free by Artlist, Blue Dot Sessions, Motion Array, and Storyblocks. Original music by Verlin Thompson. Graphics by Orlando Rodriguez and Thalia Kaladimos. Website and promotional material, Thalia Kaladimos and Jim Champis. Our theme song is Criminal by Binge Heard, featuring Katrina Stone, courtesy of Artlist. Carol's Last Christmas is distributed by Radio Misfits. Our sincere thanks to the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press for pre-publication review, and to those who knew and loved Carol and generously shared their stories.